I want to pray for the building, and then I'm going to um, pray for the word today, and then we're going to jump right into this, this week's text. Pray with me, if you will. Father God, I thank you so much for this place, this place, Highland Middle School. It is a house of worship for you today, repurposed for your glory by your people, proclaiming your name. Uh, we know that you had, <clears throat> that others had other intentions for the space, um, to be a school, supposedly, through the week, <laughs> but Sundays, it is a sanctuary for your glory. I pray that every heart and mind here would be uh, in awe of you and recognizing you and your sovereignty this morning. I pray that when we, we come here, what we encounter in this place is not a building but you, the living God, who loves us enough to give your son that we might be free and who endows us with your Holy Spirit that we might know you more fully each day of our lives, that we are not left alone, but we are drawn into relationship with you all the time. Those are high words, God. I know it, but you have said that they're true and we believe you. And so, Father, this morning as we come into your place, would you um, cause us to believe more deeply? We have said these words before, and I was talking to my friends about this building opportunity, God, and you know already what's going to happen. You know the result that's going to come from this. And so, Father, we as your people will just glorify you as we learn the result ourselves. Whatever you have for us, that's what we want. We do pray blessings upon the sellers. We pray, pray uh, blessings upon the relationships and our good witness in the community. And we pray, Father, that ultimately that you be glorified. Your gospel will be proclaimed here. That we will be partakers in proclaiming your gospel in Highland and beyond. Um, we love you so much. And you have, uh, you have been so much at work among us that we give you praise and glory for everything you do. This morning as we get into your word, I pray that you would uh, inspire us by your Holy Spirit, that we could learn it, that you would teach us and we would be learning from you, that we have open minds and hearts and we'd be listening to you, Father, in our lives in very practical ways as we follow you together. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So we're going to pick up where we left off. We're currently doing a, uh, a book study of the book of Acts. It's been fantastic. And some of you have been uh, kind of tracking along because someone said to me, oh, I know we're in Acts 16 this week, um, and that is close. That is close. Um, we actually ended a little before 16 last week, and we're going to pick up right where we, we did um, last week as we move on. But I wanted to ask an opening question as we get into the Word to kind of frame our thinking about what it, what it means, what it looks like, right? And the question is kind of tied to last week a little bit. We talked about um, disagreements happening, but, and there's, some of you are biblical scholars, you're going to know right away how we should do this, but the question is this, how do we handle disagreements among Christians? How do we handle disagreements among Christians Another way we could ask this is, what is worth dividing over? What is worth taking our ball and going home, separating, right? Um, and we're going to learn a lot about that today, I think, and what God does through those situations. We're going to pick it up in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 36. That's where we're at, 1536. And we're just going to kind of talk through this as we go. So I verse 36 of chapter 15, the book of Acts. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. 
I'm just going to stop for a second. So you remember that Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church to be sent out to preach the gospel, fulfilling the fourth component of the promise that Jesus made that my that my gospel be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. And they've done that work. And Paul has this moment. He says, you know, it'd be really cool if now we went back to all the places we preached the gospel and we see how everyone's doing. That's a great goal, right? That's a great uh, conviction to have. Let's go back and check. Um, do some follow-up. Do some. Matter of fact, if you know the Bible, the letters, the, the epistles are written back to those churches trying to help them become better followers of Jesus. So Paul's heart for this never changes to help the believers continue to be discipled and grow in the Lord, the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, right? And so that's his desire. But Barnabas... Now, you, you all know Barnabas from Acts, right? Barnabas wants to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise because Mark had quit on them. And I want to show you, because I mentioned this when we were talking through it earlier. Like, it's really funny because it's really subtle, but there's a few places. If you turn back one or two pages in your Bible to the end of chapter 12, I mentioned this when we went through it. This becomes a huge issue. It's a minor thing mentioned. It becomes a huge issue. In verse 25 of chapter 12, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem and took with them John, also called Mark. And then if we go down to their commissioning for Paul and Barnabas in 13 now, let's see here, let's pick it up in verse 4. The two of them, sent on the way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and uh, from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Samilius, Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, They proclaimed the word of the Lord in Jewish synagogues. Here it is. John was with them as their helper, right? And then the third time we're going to hear this. this, So John's there. He's actually doing a good work, right, with Paul and Barnabas. And by the way, isn't that awesome that when Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go preach the gospel, they aren't sent even alone, the two of them. But people go with them to help them. And in this case, it says John is their helper, Right? As they go. Now, chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed on to Perga and to Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And that sounds so innocuous in the Bible. They were preaching the gospel. Oh, and by the way, John went back to Jerusalem. Footnote. Right? But then here, later in their ministry, you can turn back now if you want to, to chapter 15. Here in their ministry later, when they get ready to go, and you remember Barnabas is this guy who has found faithful. He's one of the kind of the pillars of the church. He's all in. And he says, hey, I got an idea, Paul. That's a great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. Now, you know what happens, right? It says, but Paul, in verse 38, did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued in the work with them. This became a huge issue. As a matter of fact, if you read, it says, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and he sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, um, strengthening the churches. So, which means basically Paul went and did what he was going to do. And he had the blessing of the church to do it. Now here's the funny thing about this passage of scripture. This one passage of scripture has been used to justify so much parting of ways of Christians. This one. As a matter of fact, I would be uh, 
embarrassed before the Lord if I admit to you that on this very spot where I stand today, this very text was preached to this very church body about why we can no longer do ministry together when people left. Well, you see here, because Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree on John Mark, so Paul went and, you know, Barnabas went, and that's what happened. Okay? But is that really what's happening in the text? Is that really, I mean, obviously they went separate ways, and they were commended by their brothers, but that really what's happening? And I'm surprised to see, I'm surprised to see, because Paul is, is um, a hero of the faith, you know? The Apostle Paul, man, like the, the righteous one, and he's the guy that won't give John Mark a second chance? And then we have this other guy, Barnabas. And if you don't know, I have a soft spot for Barnabas. I think it's amazing. But he's the guy going, let's try again. Come on, Paul. And Paul's like, no, I don't think it's wise. If you quit on me once, you quit on me again. And then Barnabas has such a conviction. I mean, how many people would like to be there with the Apostle Paul when he's preaching the gospel? Anybody? Come on. Yeah, right? I mean, just, just to hear Paul go after one person with the gospel would be phenomenal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just some of it. And Barnabas goes, it's been awesome, but I'm going with Mark. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And over this seemingly trivial matter, these two part ways. Interesting. I wonder how often the things that we qualify um, are really worthy of division. Now, here's the first point, by the way. Conviction causes division. <laughs> you want people to have convictions about things that matter. And in this case, Paul says, hey, he's going to quit again. Let's don't do that. And Barnabas says, hey, he deserves a second chance. And the conviction separates them in that moment. You see, the truth is that our conviction can cause division. As a matter of fact, listen up, church family. Look around Highland. All the churches divided over convictions, right? That's the truth, you know. We have a ministry alliance here in Highland. We get together, we talk about, like, common ministry and what's happening in the community, and we, we try to love each other, right? We try to learn. We try to be graceful. We try to pray for each other's ministry. As a matter of fact, this morning, there's some awesome things happening right here in our community that I've been praying for, for other churches, that God's will be done in other churches. And, and we have this, you know, camaraderie and stuff, right? But then you look back, and it's like so many churches are off the same church. So many local little seat churches are all from the same church. But every step along the way, someone said, I have a strong enough conviction that we have to leave, and that's okay because God's going to bless it. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a bad joke out there that says this. Dale was talking about science this morning. Uh, there's this joke out there that says, um, Protestants are bad at math. Have you heard of that? Because uh, they multiply by dividing. Oh. Oh, oh, you know who was that joke? Catholics. <laughs> they do. And other Catholics are like, don't mean, don't mean to the Protestants. That's their weakness. I've had brothers in Christ say to me, don't worry, because the more churches split, the more the gospel's preached. That hurts. That hurts. 
But they do. Check it out. And there's truth to that, right? Because they are commended by the brothers to go on in preaching. And, and, and Paul does go forth with what he wants to do, to go and strengthen the churches. I mean, he's on a mission from God. He's going to do it. But so is Barnabas. Now, here's the crazy thing about Barnabas. We hear nothing more about him. Barnabas takes Mark and goes home, right? Goes somewhere, does something. We hear nothing more about him. We'll maybe come back to that later. But Paul goes on. Paul chose Silas in verse 40, and he was commended by the brothers to, to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syrians and Cilicia, um, strengthening the churches, just as he had planned to do. Right now we're in verse 1 of chapter 16. By the way, I want to say one thing. We're going to talk through the rest of this, but I want to say one thing. What's the application? We're always going to find a million things to divide over. We're always going to find something that's not exactly where we would like it to be. The check as a believer in Christ is, is this worthy of the gospel? Can we agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, he's set free in his name, that we can't do anything to earn it? And, and that's the line for me anyway, right? If we believe that, that Jesus died for our sins and we're saved by grace through faith, um, that's the primary biblical doctrine of the Messiah. But I'm not sure what it is for you, but what is that line for you that you say, if it doesn't rise to that standard, I'm not going to split over it. I'm not going to do it because the gospel is more important. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 16. He came to Durban and then to Lystra, uh, Lystra which you can see back in like uh, 14s where they were, um, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, because they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered to the, the decisions that were reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, which we talked about last week, for the people to obey. So we're going to unpack this real quick here, right? So immediately upon Barnabas and John Mark and uh, Silas and Paul splitting ways, they meet this dude named Timothy, which becomes a huge uh, biblical um, standard, I guess, for pastors especially, right? But there's this young man named Timothy. And it's important to kind of break down some of the reality of Timothy's life. We'll do this quickly. His mother was a Jewess and a believer, but his father was a Greek, right? And so um, we know later that Timothy was raised in the faith. You know, he would be a church kid, right? He, was, he learned from his grandmother and his mother the truth of the, of the gospel, and he was a believer. And so um, Paul reminds Timothy later, remember the things that you first taught, how you learned um, from your grandmother and your mother. Very interesting history for Timothy. But check it out. Um, they were taking him around, but Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Now, that's a crazy thing, because you'll recall they just went back, and they had the argument in Jerusalem about circumcision is not required for salvation, right? And so, Timothy shouldn't need to be circumcised for salvation. That's not an issue here, right? That's a, that's a big deal. Um, but, because the Jews who live in that area knew that his father was a Greek, Paul decided to circumcise him anyway. That's a tough thing right there. I mean, literally, but also, right? Here's, here's what I see out of this. For Paul, even that should not be the thing that restricts the gospel from being preached, right? He knows from the get-go that when you go amongst these Jews preaching the gospel, they're going to immediately say, his father's a Greek. How can he even be here? And so to get rid of that argument, to lay it aside, Paul has Timothy circumcised to go along with him. It seems crazy because they just had the argument about Paul saying, hey, we don't have to. But 
the reality is, if you read Paul's letters, he says over and over again that believers ought to forego things that we're allowed to do so that the gospel can be preached to the nations. Like, he's constantly saying that. All food is okay for me, but I'm not going to eat all food in front of people because I want the gospel to be heard. And this becomes an example of where he has Timothy circumcised. So that's one less question about what they're preaching as far as the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that I find interesting and kind of troubling about this text is in verse 4, as they traveled through the town from town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Those decisions were the very ones that said circumcision is not required for salvation. So on one hand, you have Paul saying Timothy's going to be circumcised. You know, God help you, Timothy. On the other hand, he's saying, but it's not required for salvation. And then there's that little footnote, but they did tell them what was what they, um, the decisions that the apostles and the elders had reached, and they called the people to obey those things. So these are Paul's marching orders out of Jerusalem now. He is saying, here's some things. Remember, it was like um, blood, meat, strangled, um, and uh, what was it? Uh, sexual purity, or, you know, not sexual impurity. And there was a fourth as well. He's going and he's preaching these things that they ought to abstain from because life would be good for them if they do. What is this going to bug me now? Blood, idols. Yeah, food sacrificed to idols, blood, meat from strangled animals, and the sexual immorality. They should stop those things because it would be bad for them if they keep doing them. And so they go and they preach that, that people ought to obey those things. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and the numbers grew daily. Verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, this might surprise some of you, but here's another truth in the Bible. The Holy Spirit limits ministry. I think that's a very anti-American thought that God would ever limit anything. It doesn't seem to, you know, do well with us. We think, no, 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 no. It's like always upward and faster and, you know, stronger, better. We don't ever slow down for anybody. Um, it's getting more and more rowdy as we go, more and more God on our side kind of stuff. But here we see in verse 6, and we talked about this at church camp with some of the leadership there, that one of the jobs the Holy Spirit does here in Paul's ministry is it limits him in his preaching of the the word in the province of Asia. It says it in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region, and the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word in the province of Asia. We ought to take note of that when we assume what God is doing. We ought to take note of that, that there are times the Holy Spirit limits our ministry, or limits our gospel proclamation, or limits our movement. Verse 7. When they came to the border of my, uh, Mysia, they, tra they tried to enter, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them. So even though the Spirit was limiting them, they're like, we're going to try to get in anyway, and the Spirit still keeps them from doing what they thought they were supposed to do. But look at verse 8. So they passed by Mysia, and they went down to Tros. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, please come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen this vision, they got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's the thing. God limits this one ministry for them through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, by the way. Note the connection there to Jesus, right? There's no Holy Spirit without Jesus. And 
the Spirit limits them, and immediately then God gives Paul this vision of man in Macedonia, and they believe we are called to go and preach there. One little note I'll make. This is fascinating to me anyway. We know that Luke, Acts was written by Luke, right? A continuation of the Gospel of Luke is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But this is the spot right here in verse 10 where it says, we got, in, after Paul saw the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called who? Us to preach the gospel there. You know what that means? Luke's on mission. Isn't that cool? And there's that moment right there, like, this is why Paul becomes this big thing to Luke, because Luke's going with Paul all of a sudden here, and this becomes a first-hand account of what Luke witnessed. The other things he has heard, he's put together the story um, for Theophilus, um, but here we have uh, Luke with them on the journey, going with them. From Tros we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. Uh, from there, we traveled to Philippi, you, that might sound familiar, a Roman colony in a leading city that of uh, the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, verse 13, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer, right? So they're always going to the synagogues or to these holy places, and they're going to preach the gospel, or they're going to reason with people about what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And they go out there, and the word says they expect to find a place of prayer outside the city gate. We sat down, and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth in the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. I'm going to stop right there. I know it's like halfway through a verse, right? I'm going to stop right there. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, right, are heading out, and they come to this place where they expect to find prayer. I don't know how that's supposed to read. I don't know if, if, if the gang showed up and thought, we're going to find a bunch of, of men down there praying by the river, if they're gonna, there's going to be this worship thing. I'm not sure if it's because there's water and baptism. I'm not sure if this is like a holy place right outside the city gates. Like, I don't know. Maybe you guys know. Maybe you're like, I know why, but I don't know why. But it seems that, if nothing else, they're a little surprised that when they show up there, they find women praying, and are women in the place of prayer. Women seeking the Lord. As a matter of fact, it says that Lydia is a worshiper of God, right? And so she's, she's there. Let's talk about Lydia for a minute. She's a businesswoman, right? She's earning a living. She's a dealer in purple cloth. I do know that purple, it was like the most prestigious cloth you could deal in. In other words, if she was in the phone market, she'd be selling the best phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, she had the best product. It was the hardest one to dye and the hardest one to dye well. It was the color of royalty. So the people who were really wealthy wanted her products. And she was a worshiper of God. And she was at the river that day. I want to say this this morning. And this is one of those concepts of ministry that this anti, um, it's counterintuitive as this, that God works in the willing. God works in the willing. You know how many people sit back and say, I could do that better, I could do this better, and I go, absolutely, but you're not. <laughs> I'd be better at this than you are. You're right, but you're not. <laughs> God works in the willing. And when Paul and the gang show up down there at the river, they find women who are willing to do what God is calling them to do. They've been doing it. There's a sense that they're seeking the Lord. Um, 
One of those listening was a woman named Lydia. In verse 14, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of... I'm not going to say it again. Okay, I'm going to try. Thyatira. <laughs> That's a little better. Who was a worshiper of God. Now check out what happened, though, and this is always key. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. But look, verse 14. She was listening. She was listening to Paul. She was, there's a sense that she was seeking the Lord, that she was a worshiper of God, and that she's in this place, and these guys show up, and she's like, I'm going to get what I can get from you. A, a, you may call it a teachable spirit or an openness to what God has for her. And the Lord opened her heart to respond, which is key. She could not have done it on her own. He didn't convince her with wise arguments, but the Lord moved in her heart, and she responded to the message. In verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, there's water there, she invited us to her home. If you truly consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, please come to my home and stay with me. And she persuaded them. So now she's hospitality, right? Lydia is interesting because she, comes, she becomes a, a leader in the church, a pillar in the church, right? Um, she's a... Uh, um, later, when Paul's writing to the churches, he's like, and remember to bless Lydia, thank Lydia, you know, send my greetings to Lydia. Like, she's following God. She's being used by God. See, the truth is that God uses the willing. We keep thinking God's going to make send some better saint or some better whatever, but God will take you and use you if you're only willing. If you're only willing to be used. There's this, that's the fundamental battle, isn't it, in our lives? It's my life, my plans, my outcome. Why would we do that? When the Lord's available to us, why would we do that? When God, the creator of the universe, will put us to work in his kingdom. Well, he did it with Lydia. He opened her heart. She believed the gospel and she invited him in. So here we go in verse 16, moving on. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, so there's a sense that they're there for a while. As a matter of fact, there are numbers in the book, in the Bible, where it tells how long that he spent with these relations with these people, right? But once, while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling for others, Right? The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. That's what she would say. I want you to hear it again. She was saying these words. These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left. And that's to say this, and this is the problem, right? Not all spirits are gods. I read that passage, and I think, if I'm Paul, and I'm going around, and there's some local who's behind me saying, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, I'm going to go, right, you know, cheer me on. You know this girl, and right? That's what I would be thinking. Is I want that kind of endorsement. I want the local people to say, yeah, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. But Paul has the Spirit of God in him. And no matter what the words are, he has a sense that this is not of God. That whatever she's doing is not of God. 
where we have the backstory about her that she's being sold, her skills are being sold out by others who are managing her. You can get the imagery there, right? To tell the fortune of others, to tell the future. And Paul knows in that moment, he knows it's not of God. See, here's the thing. We believe that when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. An assurance of salvation begins to work on you from the inside out, begins to sanctify you, make you holy, pure like Jesus Christ, to empower you beyond your capacity as a human being to live differently for the gospel, to be obedient even to the law, which is crazy because no one can obey the law, right? But keeping the law of Jesus Christ. And in this place, though, there are other spirits at war. And this one, it seems kind of innocuous, the, the men of the Most High God, like that's an Old Testament reference. That's not of God. And he rebukes the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit comes out of her. I've told stories. Here's, here's what's problematic. Because people see amazing things, and they go, oh, isn't that awesome? And the first question we should ask is, is it of the Lord? I mean, even stuff that I'm infatuated with or you're infatuated with, that we ever ask, is it of the Lord? Or is it some other spirit? Not God's spirit. And you might say, well, how can you tell? Listen, the spirit of God dwells in you as a believer. In you. That's how you can tell. That's how Paul could tell. And he turned around in this moment of righteousness, true righteousness, and he rebuked the spirit. Look at it. He said to the spirit... In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of this girl, out of her. And it came out. Problems. Verse 19. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was now gone, I mean, it's a spiritual battle, right? Now they can only, I keep wanting to say the word pimp her out. That's such a crass word, but they keep wanting to use her for their own ends. And the minute that Jesus sets her free by his spirit, right? All of a sudden, they're not profitable anymore. She, she can't do that. And so they grab Paul and Silas and they drag them to the marketplace to face all the authorities because they've ruined our business model here. They brought them to the magistrates in verse 20 is where I'm at. And they said, these men are Jews and they're throwing the entire city into an uproar by teaching customs or advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. This is a Roman province. And so they're like, this stuff don't fly here. They're preaching something else, and it's ruining our business. I've said this before, right? And that's a tough, tough thing. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and to be beaten. So Paul and Silas were paying a price for proclaiming the gospel yet again. And in this case, they were absolutely in the right that it was not of God. And so they're beaten. 23. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 24. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cells, and he fastened their feet to stocks. This is the deal. They've been thrown in prison. They've been locked in the worst, dankest hole. They've been secured inside the cell by their ankles, so they can't even walk around their own cell. And guess what they do? Do you see it? I hope you're looking at the word, by the way. You should read the Bible for yourself and don't just be like, oh, that pastor said this or that. 25, listen to the word. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening. 
Because as hard as it is to believe, and let me tell you something, church, life is hard, but Christians always worship. I'm reminded this morning we're in here, we're singing songs, I'm reminded that all of us come from different backgrounds, different life situations, and there are days it is hard to worship. Not because God is not worthy, but because we don't feel like it. You know, Paul and Silas have been beaten and locked up for doing a good thing and preaching the gospel, and they're in the air, and they're locked up, and it's so easy to make this a cartoon and be like, oh, they're so holy. No, man, but they're going to worship God anyway. And not only is their worship edifying, or, or not only is their worship pleasing to the Lord, but their worship is edifying to the other prisoners who are there of their own accord. Do you ever wonder about that? Why God might cause his people to be locked up. That you could sit there in shackles and you could begin to recite the songs that you knew of the Savior who's made you free. To sing, to quote the Psalms, to proclaim a God who is bigger than all this. And the prisoners are listening. What's up with these guys? Christians always worship. Can I just give you one mm, encouragement today? If there are days that you don't feel like worshiping, if there are days that you feel like God has left you out in the field or set you out in the rain or abandoned you in the desert, I want to encourage you just to worship him. You are worthy. You are faithful. You don't forget your people. Your promises are good and true and right and holy. And you say, well, how can I do that? Listen, the Holy Spirit's living in you. It's an anchor for our inheritance. We know the place we're going. There's a crazy thing that happens when you do this. When you worship God at the most difficult times, the world begins to look way less powerful. <laughs> All of a sudden, people go, what is going on with this person? That they would worship at a time like this. Look at verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison itself were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Look, everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had all escaped. Like that, he was given instructions, you know, guard him with your life. And this thing happens, and he immediately goes, I'm going to end it for myself. I'm going to end it for myself. And you might say with me, Paul and Silas, get out of there, man. The Lord has set you free, right? Get up and run. You know, Peter got busted out of jail, and he just walked out. Remember that? I mean, why not? We've seen the model before. You know, you're free, Paul and Silas. Get up and go. And here's the crazy thing about Paul's witness. He has integrity. And I struggle to put our in there, but integrity is important, and our integrity is important. In this moment where the jailer thinks they're all free, there are at least three things in, this, in his coming actions that show the integrity the Apostle Paul had and that we ought to have in our lives as well. The first is that upon the jailer discovering that he was going to take his own life, and all Paul had to do was remain silent. He says nothing, the jailer kills himself, and all these prisoners walk out. They're free. 
but he doesn't. He keeps his integrity, and he calls out to the jailer. Look at what it says in 28. He shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. No one has run away. We are still in prison. 29, the jailer calls for lights. That means they ran in with the torches, and they rushed in, and they fell, trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out of the jail. He escorted them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the second thing that Paul holds integrity on. He says what he's always said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Listen to the word, you and your household. You, Greek jailer, will be saved if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in his integrity, it gave him a witness opportunity he would not have had. Paul would have been free, but not preaching the gospel to this guy right now. Would not have happened. But his integrity lets him then preach the gospel with integrity that he's always preached. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour the night of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his family were baptized. There it is again. 34, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family had come to faith because of Paul's integrity and in staying in prison whenever he could have walked out. When it was daylight, the magistrates um, sent their officers to the jailer with this order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you to, in Silas to be released. Now you can go. Please go in peace. And look at what happens. This is the third time that Paul has some integrity. He says to the officers, they beat us without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens, they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No way. Let them come themselves and escort us out. He's like, we were wrongfully accused. We were wrongfully treated. And I will not leave until I'm walked out of here by the people that put us here. Roman citizens that we are. Well, this created a big, so that's a third place in here where he holds integrity. I don't know if you've, um, you've heard, but there are, there, there are people right now who are fighting for justice and they won't take less than justice. It's not just good enough to go, oh, forget about it. Sorry, I'm bad. They say, no, 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 no. This was unjust. And we're not going to go until justice is served. And they end up paying a huge price for being willing to hold their convictions for true justice. Well, that's what Paul does here as a witness. And the officers report this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were terrified. They were alarmed. And they came to them themselves and appeased them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city now. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. There she is again, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. By the way, notice Lydia's house, brothers are there, right? So after all this, they leave, and they're encouraged in the faith. Closing, I'll say this. So many times, people go, oh, the church does this, and oh, the church does that. And you and I can't help what the church does, right? But we can help what we do. We can help what we do. And our integrity matters. There is nothing that is a higher calling than being able to preach the gospel and to be weird. I don't mean be weird like the world's weird, but be weird like the gospel's weird. Like you don't want revenge. You don't want your way. You don't want, you know, to, to, um, over, to rule over people. To be weird. Because that makes people say, how can I be like that? 
There's only one way to be like that, and that's through Jesus Christ. I know most of you this morning know this, right? But the truth is that Jesus died for your sins, and I've felt this conviction lately that make it very clear. You can't earn it. I can't earn it. We haven't figured it out, and this is a huge issue. But we receive what Jesus has done in full on the cross, and in his grace and in his immutable grace to us, he pours himself out to sanctify us, to purify us from our sins, and to sanctify us by the Holy Spirit. And that's the life you want. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't want it. I don't want Jesus. I don't want You do. <laughs> you want it. You're made for it. Can't encourage you enough today. Believe the good news of Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your house. It's a house of prayer, your presence. It's a place of sanctuary for all of us. I cannot imagine in the room the size, the number of hurts and uh, suffering and pain, Father God, but only you can apply your uh, healing touch to. And so, Father, I do pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the name of Jesus Christ, that your healing ministry would come and to serve us today, to, to make us whole and, and complete again, to, to even give us hope that it's possible, Father God, that you would restore us fully into your presence, that you're not a, uh, you don't have a half-hearted restoration gospel, but a full restoration gospel that we know you completely and are known by you completely. Father God, for the encouragement your Holy Spirit has given us today that we can live into these promises and believe you when everything in the world says otherwise, and that ultimately we'd be faithful to you, that we wouldn't fall for the trap of, of everyone else's failure, but we would, we would be submitted unto your purposes, living by your Spirit, that we might, that we might be glorifying to you. It's a tall order, and that's why only you can do it, Father. So today, as the hearts and minds turn toward you in worship, I pray that you would cause us to believe more deeply in your promises forever. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.